What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. We have a special guest with us who we are going to get to and introduce him properly in a few moments. You may recognize his voice if you've been following along with this Manelli Marathon. And this is going to wrap up the Manelli Marathon, this bonus podcast. We are going to share our best of the Manelli Marathon awards. We are calling them the Garlands. We remind you first that this marathon is brought to you by Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce a new gem and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, each film is hand-selected by experts. Plus, you can delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews. You'll find all of that on Mubi's Notebook. For your free trial, go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting. And without further ado... We bring in Nathaniel from South Bend. We've been billing you, and you've been billing yourself simply as Nathaniel from South Bend, but you're actually Nathaniel Myers from Notre Dame University. You are a professor at Notre Dame who has been participating and has been an active participant, really, in this Manelli Marathon. Thanks so much for coming to the studio and helping us out. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Right, This is very exciting. I would like to say, you know, I've been listening for a couple of years, been going through the back catalog. Uh, I think if it weren't for the fact that I had a full-time job and a wife, uh, I'd be a little concerned about myself and my obsession <laughs> with film spotting. So this is very, very cool. Thanks for having me. Well, it's awesome to have you. Actually, you're the only other person in the room right now who participated in all six installments of the Manelli Marathon. Someone slacked yeah. last week. I know. Gallivanting well, across my home state. You know, no colleges have invited me back. <laughs> The prodigal son I know. to come speak. Let's I got to write let, a book, I let's guess. Let's just let that lay where it lays. <laughs> uh, let, let's also point out, though, that Nathaniel out-credentials the professor, Michael Phillips. This guy's got a right. PhD. Sure. Yeah. Whoa, 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 so whoa. for the awards, <laughs> we're bringing in the real professor. <laughs> to be it. fair, it's a PhD in Irish and British poetry, hey, hey, not film. Hey, but details, details. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true. We have heard your voicemails helping us set up all of these conversations. They've been very instructive, and they certainly have cut down on how much work we have to do in preparing those setups. So thank you, Nathaniel. That was the idea. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much <laughs> for that, for being so unselfish. But they have been, as I said, really helpful. And I think that we would love to hear from you since you have been such a key part of this marathon. As we get through these awards, it only made sense that we also heard your picks. It also made sense because you're the one who suggested the name we ultimately chose. We are going with the Garlands. Of course, inspired by Judy Garland, who was married to Vincent Minnelli, in addition to being the star of Meet Me in St. Louis. So thank you for suggesting that as well. Of course. Also divorced, but uh, that's, that's true. Okay. <laughs> that's true. But before we get to those, just a little bit more background. You, you've said some of it. We have actually featured an email from you in the past on the show. You were a listener who donated. Thank you very much mm -hmm. for that. And we read some of your comments on your history with the show. You just had discovered it really in the fall of 2016 that's right. and then started going back through the entire catalog. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And that's exactly why I'm a little concerned about how much I've listened of that back catalog. But uh, I listen to it when I go for a little jog. Mm -hmm. uh, I've lost a few pounds thanks to you guys. Um, <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Uh, you'll also be glad to know that I've featured your show in a class uh, that I taught at St. Mary's, which is the sister school mm -hmm. of University of Notre Dame. Um, their final project was a uh, 
uh, a podcast. So I had uh, I featured uh, both your show and Next Picture Show. Nice. Uh, and the one thing I learned is that actually it's quite difficult to do what you do. Uh, they're sweet kids. <laughs> Finally, but, uh, someone knows. Yeah, right, right, right. right. <laughs> so uh, I got about, uh, I think I asked them to do about 10 to 20 minute podcasts and that fell a little short for some of them. So. Okay. Well, how about your history with Minnelli? Uh, remind me, had you seen any of his films before this marathon, or was this all new to you? Are you trying to expose me here? <laughs> no, no, this is what marathons are for, uh, yeah. so I'm just curious. No, so really, uh, my my entrance into cinema, you know, I was probably 18, and I discovered the Criterion Collection and really went down the kind of Bergman, Fellini, uh, Godard route, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is to say that I know next to nothing about classical Hollywood. Uh, You know, I know some of the mainstays, right? Some of the most important things. So this really was a kind of learning experience uh, for me. It's been great to have Michael on to uh, get a lot of that context. Um, But uh, yeah, so I'm really coming at this as a kind of, you know, maybe not a total novice, but uh, feeling my way through this along with you guys. Mm -hmm. It's been great. And you did point out that you are not a film professor. Your PhD is not in cinema, but you do teach some film classes as you... You noted. So talk about your background there a little bit in terms of the classes you do teach. Yeah. So I'm uh, a a professor of writing. Um, You know, it's not sort of creative writing, but academic writing, sort of getting freshmen uh, at the University of Notre Dame uh, into learning how to do research papers and things like that. I mean, they're coming from pretty good backgrounds and know how to do a lot of these things, but we're trying to refine here. Um, I was actually thinking, Josh, you'll enjoy, I do a film-based writing class. I'm not currently doing it, uh, but I've got one particular version of the class, which is film-based. And the second assignment they have is a research paper uh, devoted to Wes Anderson. Oh, I do love it. It, Josh will be there. (laughs) He's going to audit. You'll uh, you'll find that actually uh, I get maybe a handful of students who really really enjoy it and then everyone else just like does not love Wes Anderson. Huh. That sounds about right. I would He's be not curious. connecting with the kids. <laughs> well, that's that's what I was going to ask. Like that demographic, that age group is Anderson someone that they're familiar with from specific films or is he new to them? I think he's new to a fair number of them and I think his style just really takes them by surprise. Um, I try to find ways to sort of get them thinking about, you know, using things that they know to get as a reference point to think about Anderson. So like, you know, a lot of his films are sort of about Arrested Development and we, we watch Royal Tenenbaums and so I try to use sort of the show Arrested Development which, you know, I'm already dating myself a little bit in that way too, mm-hmm. right? Um, but like that's a kind of way to get them in. Sure, sure. Uh, but still, they just, you know, they think the characters are obnoxious and they're, <laughs> they don't understand why they don't just say things, how they're feeling, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, so that some of them get really turned off by Interesting. it. Interesting. But I do get some great papers, I will say. Uh, we do Grand Budapest Hotel and uh, I've gotten some terrific papers on the nature of sort of mise-en-scene and the way nostalgia sort of actually physically affects the things that we're looking at on screen in Wes Anderson and, you know, They're good students. They know what they're doing. That's great. Hey, as long as you win a few over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, let's get to our categories for the Garlands. We are going to share our best supporting performance, our best lead performance, our favorite Minnelli moment or scene from the marathon. More on that in a second. Our favorite overall scene or moment from the marathon. And finally, our pick for the best film of the marathon and we're going to start with supporting performance give out our first garland and i'll review some of the candidates here if you are not very familiar with these films you didn't do all your homework and you're still listening to this bonus show or if you did and you just need that reminder cabin in the sky was the first movie we watched and it would probably be tough to really call any of these truly supporting performances it's a very big ensemble but you can point to very notable turns from lena horn Louis Armstrong, Bill Bailey, Butterfly McQueen, and many others. Then it was Meet Me in St. Louis. You have the entire Smith family to choose from. Josh's favorite, Tootie, Margaret O'Brien. I might go with Tootie. (laughs) Or maybe not. The parents, Mary Astor and Leon James. Then you have the various love interests as well. The Bad and the Beautiful, Walter Pidgeon played Harry Pebble, who was the first boss to Kirk Douglas's character, Dick Powell, who plays the writer, James Lee Bartlow, who becomes a screenwriter after being a novelist and professor. Barry Sullivan, the director, Fred Emile, and Gloria Graham. 
as the actress, Rosemary. We then went to The Bandwagon, Oscar Levant, very memorably in that film with Nanette Fabre, James Buchanan as Jeffrey Cordova, the famed director, Sid Charisse, I'm including as a Best Supporting Performance candidate, though she's the leading lady of The Bandwagon and I suppose could be considered for lead. Finally, Lust for Life, a couple of Supporting performances here to point out Anthony Quinn as Paul Gauguin, James Donald as the brother, Theo Van Gogh. And finally, we closed out the marathon with Some Came Running, Dean Martin in that film, Martha Heyer, Arthur Kennedy, and Shirley MacLaine. So just a little bit more here, a couple tidbits. Margaret O'Brien, your favorite, Josh. Mm-hmm. She did win an Oscar in 1945 for Outstanding Child Actress. Okay. That was an award at the time, obviously. Supporting Actress in 1953 did go to Gloria Graham for Rosemary in The Bad and the Beautiful. And in 1957, Anthony Quinn won the Oscar. Of course for he his did. his performance, his very big performance. That's an Oscar for Paul Gauguin. Now, when some came running... The trio of Hire, Kennedy, and McLean all got nominees, Hire and Kennedy for Supporting Actress and Actor, respectively. And then Shirley McLean actually got nominated for Best Lead Actresses. I think for the purposes of the Garlands, we're going to consider her a supporting performer. And I'm just going to throw it out there. Is there any chance that one of us is actually going to pick against Shirley McLean for her performance in this movie as our overall favorite supporting turn? I had a close second. Okay. I have a second, but it's a second. Okay. We're all, we're all in agreement. The Garland goes to Shirley MacLaine. And this provides a nice entree, Josh, into Some Came Running, the movie that you've yes. skipped, off promoting your book, selling it out of the back of your trunk. and <laughs> The way we used to do T-shirts at the drive-in. <laughs> That's right. That did happen. <laughs> Not hyperbole. So give us a little bit on Some Came Running. Did you listen to my take along with Michael's, or have you not had time yet? I did. Okay. I managed to catch up with that episode. Um, Yeah, I probably fall close to where you're at there. I would have disappointed Michael once again in being mildly appreciative of the film, but not in love with it. Uh, Nathaniel, I heard some of, you know, the concerns you brought up, and I shared those as well. For me, this brings us back to the Garlands. McLean mm-hmm. really saves the film. She I think it. there, yeah, I think there is some interesting camera work being done by Minnelli. Adam, I think you pointed out the moment where the screen darkens mm-hmm. uh, when Frank Sinatra is making yet another heinous move, uh, and 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 that's actually what I like about that moment is I do sense Minnelli second guessing the material there yep. and saying, uh, "I realize this isn't." The romantic moment that maybe it seems from the way Michael described it, the novel thinks it should be um, or some audiences might want this to be. But I realize this is more complicated and this is a a dark and dangerous moment. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that the entire movie – I think the movie overall is more invested in Dave, the Sinatra character. For sure elevation as an artist. And I think that is prioritized over any concerns for how he treats, yes, particularly women, but really anyone in his life. As long as he spits out another good novel, it doesn't matter who he chews up and spits out along the way. And I think that's in line with a lot of these Minnelli films, right, where the art is elevated above all else. And there's some conflict about that in a lot of the movies. That's what makes, when we get to my best picture in the Garlands, uh, my best picture. But There wasn't enough of that conflict for me in Some Came Running, particularly in the way it failed to question the overall monstrous behavior of all the men on the screen. Questioned it enough, questioned it a little bit, but maybe not quite enough for me. But hey, we've got McLean, so I'm just going to go into my award for her, if that's all right. Uh, Back up a little bit. The one I almost gave it to was Ethel Waters, and she might maybe be a lead Mm -hmm. in Cabin in the Sky for her long-suffering wife, Petunia, but uh, it is such an ensemble piece. I thought about her for Best Supporting Performance that, you know, when she says, I feel a musical urge, you just got to clear the dance floor, and I love that sequence in Cabin in the Sky, but ultimately, I'm going to go with McLean. You know, her Ginny Moorhead, so she's a cocktail hostess who's pining after Frank Sinatra's floundering novelist. And she isn't exactly a paragon of feminism here, but she certainly has a spark that's all her own. And it's independent of the men circling her 
in this film. I love that little detail where she chows down on a burger early on at the bar and later she giddily sachets her way into a nightclub act. I mean, there are just scenes where she has this willful Mm -hmm. joie de vivre that's going to take over the movie. And eventually it charms Sinatra's Dave so that we start to see if there's any tiny glimmer of good in him. It begins to bloom whenever Ginny is around. More importantly for me, uh, when he falls back after they've kind of made that turn, they agree they're going to be some sort of couple. He falls back into mistreating her again, and she calls him on it. Mm -hmm. And in your guys' review, and Sam played the crucial clip there, she says, you really shouldn't talk to me like that. She insists. Mm -hmm. I'm a human, you know? And she's she's just a wonderful one. So like Ethel Waters – I think this is a subversive performance, just as Waters is making her own mark in the midst of the racial obfuscation in Cabin in the Sky. McLean manages to upend some of the sexism that's going on in Some Came Running. Yeah. Nathaniel, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I would echo all of what you just said there, Josh. And uh, in particular, I I also noted that burger moment. Uh, It reminded (laughs) me of a scene early on uh, of all pictures uh, from uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, where Adele, uh, the main character there. The spaghetti, exactly. Yeah, 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 I always remember that. And there's this sort of luscious enjoyment, indulgence of the food, Mm -hmm. right? And this speaks to a kind of character enthusiasm and embrace of the world that, you know, she and Shirley MacLaine, Ginny, are encountering, right? And so uh, I really loved that particular moment. Um, You know, you have that opening scene with her and um, Frank Sinatra, and it's a great little, I think, two and a half minute, I think Michael had noted, long take. And she comes off, right, you come with the baggage of knowing Shirley MacLaine, or at least we do, right, as, you know, uh, Fran Kubelik, right? And mm-hmm. so she's already sort of endeared herself. But she's got this garish makeup on, and you're sort of thinking, okay, like, this is this is an interesting little role for her. Like, where is this going to go? We get the burger moment, and then things sort of open up when she confronts Martha Heyer, right, yep. in that classroom scene. And uh, just when she sort of is openly raw with her emotions, uh, and just is so joyous to hear that, right, uh, Frank Sinatra, that um, Dave is going to be hers, right? Uh, it's just so incredibly moving and touching. Uh, and that I think it's that rawness of emotion that really does sort of ground that film. If, if, if anything is going to sort of subvert the high toxic masculinity of that film, it's her sort of emotional fragility, for lack of a better word. And, you know, to be fair, I don't think that that character is unproblematic. You know, she is sort of a kind of hooker with a heart of gold Mm -hmm. who literally, you know, figuratively and literally then has to sort of sacrifice herself for... Yes. For For the benefit of the the lead man. Yeah, exactly. Like, we always want this, right? But no, it's, you know, so that is a problematic aspect of her character, but it's her character, right? Like she plays that to the nines. Uh, yeah, and not really the performance. Yeah, that performance. So you mentioned the baggage the character carries. And I have to point oh, out yes. the purse. I mean, this purse that Ginny carries around is the saddest purse I've ever seen on screen. I don't know if it's a, if it's a puppy or a rabbit. I, I could never quite tell. But it's just this droopy stuffed animal purse that – You know, it it represents, of course, that she's in between, Mm -hmm. you know, girlhood and this life as an independent woman that Mm -hmm. she's embarking on. So there's some obvious symbolism there, but also just the droopiness of it that captures where she's at, too. Yeah. So here's where I, going last, end up just kind of restating the things you guys have already so nicely articulated. But one of the things that really stands out for me is that this seems, I think you guys would agree, to be on the surface a very thankless role for a lot of the reasons we've discussed. I wonder if at the time— McLean perceived it that way or if anyone else perceived it that way or if this was actually like a really juicy role for a woman in Hollywood. That's something maybe someone else out there with more perspective can share. But she is manic as written anyway. She's ignorant. The whole scene that leads up to what you were talking about, Josh, is the one where he's reading her the story and she's like, oh, I, I don't understand that reading stuff. You know, she can't follow any of that. And she's her kind life, of playing a part she, she thinks she's expected to play too, is, I think. Yeah, I think that's there a little bit. But her life does, for the most part, revolve around her man. How about the scene where she cannot wait? She's so eager to be domesticated yeah. that she, she can't wait to clean up the house for him, right? So that is kind of difficult Did to watch. Did not go over well with my daughter watching this I'm film. I'm guessing <laughs> not. I'm guessing not. And yet, 
use the word, Nathaniel, it's the right one. McLean does ground her somehow. And we never pity her. At least I never felt pity for her, except when she's being legitimately mistreated by Sinatra's character. And that scene in the classroom is the one for me, Nathaniel. You touched on it here and also in your voicemail. That's the one where that performance really put its claws into me. And I realized that McLean was doing something important and really powerful in this film because before she was kind of a hanger on and a little bit annoying, frankly. And from that scene on out, that's not how I felt about her. Her revelation to the Gwen character does have a plot function in the movie in that it causes Martha Heyer's character to change what she's about to embark on. It does alter her life and her choices in some ways, but it's also the move where you feel like that struggle you were talking about, Josh, it's where I think Minnelli almost wants to give the movie over to her as the heroine of the film, but he can't Mm -hmm. ultimately bring himself to do it. But she's the only truly selfless character in the movie. She may be ignorant about some aspects of the world, but she isn't dumb. I think in that scene, you see that she recognizes how Gwen perceives her but there's no guile about her, and it's just it's a it's a tricky combination, I would think, for an actress to pull off. And somehow, McLean does it. She's really amazing in this. My runner up, and I want to hear yours, Nathaniel. My runner up would be actually James Donald. I loved him as the brother in Lust for Life. That's exactly who I had. Uh, you know, I I think uh, next to you guys, I had a little bit of trouble with Lust for Life. Uh, I just for me, uh, again, I think as I said originally uh, back on that episode, it's one that I appreciated or, or wanted to appreciate, but it just never won me over. But having listened to you guys talk about it, and I think Sam actually wrote something on Letterboxd about James McDonald or James Donald. Uh, that's right. He gives a kind of tenderness uh, to that movie. Um, and so with a movie that's so big at all times, mm-hmm. right? And again, I recognize that that befits the nature of the subject and the The, the volatile character, yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, nevertheless, we need – I found I needed James Donald to uh, help give some tenderness and some uh, sensitivity to uh, how we're perceiving the action that's happening around him yeah. with his brother. Well, yeah. like McLean, I think he grounds that film yeah, with exactly. that very subtle performance. Let's get to our favorite lead performance then. Cabin in the Sky, you said it, Josh, Ethel Waters, probably more appropriate there. Eddie Rochester Anderson as well. Meet Me in St. Louis. Judy Garland. The Bad and the Beautiful, I think you can put both Lana Turner and Kirk Douglas as the stars of that film. The Bandwagon would surely be Fred Astaire, maybe Sid Charisse. Lust for Life, it's definitely Kirk Douglas, and Some Came Running, it's definitely Frank Sinatra. We did have a nomination at the 1953 Oscars for Kirk Douglas for The Bad and the Beautiful, and then in 1957, he got nominated again for Lust for Life. So Douglas, obviously, having some success in Hollywood due to his collaborations with Minnelli. Are any of us going to go with Kirk Douglas? We'll start with you, Nathaniel, your garland for lead performance, though I fear actually this is going to be another case where we're all in agreement. I actually think we will not be in agreement. Uh, I did not go Kirk Douglas. uh, And I, well, we'll see where you guys end up. Uh, We're here, the awards are the garlands. I actually wanted to go with Judy Garland. That's to say that I really did think about Ethel Waters as a lead and really considered her. And I also considered Lana Turner, um, who is uh, fantastic in The Bad and the Beautiful. Um, But if I'm being honest, right, this was just – for me, this was actually the most challenging of the awards to pick. I just didn't feel like there was a clear front runner, at least from my end of things. Um, Certainly, I didn't think – among the men, right, uh, nothing really stood out to me. Frank Sinatra was just a, too, a little too meh, you know. And mm-hmm. um, uh, and Kirk Douglas I really liked in Bad and the Beautiful. Uh, didn't love him as much in Lust for Life, but didn't think that even that was his best performance. So I sort of thought through those three women. Um, and, yeah, I landed on Judy Garland. And I think that's mostly just because, for me, it was really unexpected. I think you both talked about this as well. Um, I'd never seen her outside of Wizard of Oz, uh, where she's this fairly young, a little spunky stranger in a strange land and and, and doesn't do much beyond that. But here uh, we get – she doesn't shed that personality entirely, but she adds to it. And we get these different dimensions that we've never seen before. You guys talked about the sultry moment at the top of the staircase uh, and this word beguiling. I mean she herself is beguiling in that moment. Um, But uh, also that kind of deeply wistful moment uh, when she's singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, uh, which just exudes a kind of 
maturity that I'd never seen, a kind of depth of emotion. And yes, is it wrapped up in a kind of nostalgia, perhaps, uh, but nevertheless, for me, I find that very, very effective. And and so, and that's not to say anything of just the sheer talent of her of her voice, right? right? Which is just formidable, incredible. Yeah. 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 So, Josh, are you going some other direction? You know, I did come away with. Greater appreciation for Douglas. That's one of the things I, I will be happy about with this marathon. But yeah, it's Garland. Ah. And meet me in St. Yeah, Louis. It's Garland. I oh, mean, it's, right. <laughs> and I think, you know, you named some of the reasons here, Nathaniel, because we do look for revelations when we do these marathons. And Garland was, I had a similar history with her, though I did see her in recent years in Easter Parade, where she's paired with Fred Astaire, who showed up in another marathon entry, the bandwagon here. Um, so I had, you know, a, a slightly different opening view of her. But yeah, this second look at Meet Me in St. Louis, been years since I'd seen it before, really did show those sides for her that you mentioned. Those are the two moments, right? The Staircase and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which I couldn't have imagined that song could become sadder, but somehow right. she, she manages to pull that off here with her performance. So I think she's also... The reason I'm going with her is because this is yet another film. Um, You know, I wish I liked more than Mm -hmm. I did. And the best thing about it for me is Garland. She really – this could have been for me otherwise a a claustrophobic (laughs) peon to, you know, the values of the nuclear Midwestern family. And she lets the air out of that a little bit. So that's why I'm going with Garland. You don't think Tootie could be – a Royal Tenenbaum member, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. A little Wes Anderson going on in the I Smith don't know. family. She's she, she's a little too vindictive, and, and let's just say it, evil. Maybe so. Well, I agree with everything you just said about the movie. And, of course, I was going to bring up the sensuality. I was going to bring up those two moments. So we will move on to Easy enough. our third category. And finally, I'm sure we're going to get some disparate answers and maybe some different perspectives on these moments. Manelli moment or scene, it means exactly what it sounds like. It isn't necessarily our favorite moment from the marathon as a whole, the best scene, we think, but the one that for us in some way sums up the entire marathon when we talk about Vincent Manelli as a director. Nathaniel, we'll start with you. All right. Well, I went back and forth on one of two. I'm not going to give you the second because I don't want to cheat like Adam. Uh, But uh, I'll go ahead and say that for me, I guess the moment – I'm already thinking about whether I should have gone with the other one. Uh, (laughs) This is why he's gone through the back catalog. Yes. (laughs) The moment for me, I guess, is from The Bad and the Beautiful. And it's what I call the second take kiss with Gloria Graham when her character Rosemary – uh, gives her husband, Dick Powell's screenwriter, James Lee Bartlow, a, a second kiss. Yeah, you brought this one up, Josh. I love this yeah, moment. This so is good. an incredible moment, right? And I think it's important to know to know a little bit of what's happening just beforehand, right? So they have clearly come from a party. Uh, Rosemary's already been established as a fairly uh, amorous uh, character. Um, and so it comes after this party, and she's upset with her husband, who, as she says, has been boorish to Jonathan Shields. Uh, and uh, she's really starting to enjoy the Hollywood life. Uh, apparently, from Bartlow's perspective, she spent the whole night dancing with Gaucho, which we'll come to learn has much more meaning than we recognize at that moment. So the two are in a bit of a tiff, and the camera, uh, which is one of these, you know, extended long takes. Uh, it pans around to frame the two of them in looking in the mirror. Uh, and so we get this kind of duplicity, this doubleness happening as they discuss how they've changed and how Hollywood has changed them. Uh, Rosemary in this fight sort of finally relinquishes and says, have I changed too? I dare say I'm getting too big for my britches, to which Bartlow responds saying, they're pretty britches, right? <laughs> she turns to him, says, James Lee, you have a very naughty mind. I'm happy to say, right? And then he goes in for the kiss and she rejects him, right? She turns away, right? So you've had this kind of moment in which they've let their guard down and you think everything's going to be okay. And then she chooses not to go through with it, right? right? She walks away, turns back in this very sort of sultry turn, uh, very Hollywood style turn, walks up to him. And then, you know, they kiss again in this very, you know, something straight out of a Hollywood film. We talked or you talked this whole marathon about this tension between the professional and the personal life. In this kiss, right, in this second take kiss, 
she collapses these two worlds, right? And ultimately, that relationship crumbles from that moment, right? If Minnelli is interested in these various tensions, and I think they play out in different ways, this tension between the personal and the professional, here it seems uh, at its most cynical in collapsing them. There's no way uh, that they can carry these uh, two worlds um, that they can juggle these two worlds uh, at the same time. And so their relationship really collapses from this point forward. And so it seems ultimately very devastating. And yet it's also so incredibly joyous in the embrace of this Hollywood filmic moment Mm -hmm. uh, that there's this sort of ecstatic joy for the artifice of it all uh, and the... um, thrill of engaging in that kind of uh, Hollywood artifice. It's really a brilliant moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great pick. Mine is uh, related to a a similar theme along those lines, I think. If if we can say that much of Minnelli cinema is about the irresistible yet oppressive allure of creating art and particularly movies themselves – I can't think of another shot that captures that better than one of the first ones from The Bad and the Beautiful. It's the kiss, another kiss, but this one between two cameras. This is where we're on the Hollywood set and the camera swoops in via crane shot on an actress sprawled on a couch. This is just as a camera we see in the shot comes in from the other direction, approaches the actress from the other side. So these two cameras converge on this woman. Of course, they're not really concerned with her. They're more infatuated with Hollywood as this whole movie is, as Minnelli is. So there is more exhilarating. There's more of an exhilarating feel here than darkness, I would say. But if you consider the intense possessiveness that can also be felt in this scene, I think that represents Minnelli cinema as well. That other side, that underbelly, at least as we've come to experience it in the marathon. And I think definitely in The Bad and the Beautiful, we will go on to experience as we get more of that movie. So that's that's Manelli to me mm-hmm. from a good for good and bad from what we've seen is he just he gives the movies an exuberant over the top kiss. Yeah. I did not go with a scene from The Bad and the Beautiful. I'm going to mix it up here a little bit and it's funny because some came running. The last film we talked about here, Michael Phillips last week in the show, was probably if I had to rank these movies was probably the one I enjoyed the least from the entire marathon. And yet I'm giving two garlands hmm. to some came running. My Manelli moment is one I touched on at the very end of that conversation with Michael Phillips. It's when Ray comes running at the carnival at the end of some came running. It's this this wonderfully expressionistic sequence. I think that's the word Michael used and it really is appropriate for it where we are building up to a shootout. We don't know that that's necessarily happening, but we can tell that Ray, who is the love interest of Shirley MacLaine's character, well, he has an interest in her, and she has pushed him to the side. He's now in a worked-up state. He's looking for them, and we know they're somewhere at the carnival that's taking place in this town. I think it's to celebrate their centennial, 100 years of Parkman, Indiana, or something like that, and he is trying to chase them down. I actually Googled this today. I had to look up what the name of the ride was that is in all of these shots because Michael had a good story about the Ferris wheel that is definitely prominent in this sequence, but it's not a carousel. I think it's called a hurricane. Do you know what it these rides like are? It looks like one of those. It's like a swing that spins you yes. out. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Yeah. So it, it's almost like a – it feels like spider's legs with, yeah. with these – you're in a seat of some kind and it spins around and oftentimes it will go up and down too as you spin in a circle. We don't really see the people on it or the carriages they're in. We just see the lights. Those these lights. primary colors of the yellow, red, and blue against the dark black of the nighttime. And those circles, those colors from the hurricane – are in almost every frame of that carnival sequence. Like, Minnelli can't help himself but include that splash of color in every shot. And so it becomes this surreal thing where at once you believe you're in this small town in Indiana at one of these types of carnivals, or you could be on a soundstage. It seems very much like that, where he is in complete control of every single thing that is part of the picture. And then, for me, it's the moment. The key moment is when Ray runs into the frame. We do see that Ferris wheel in the background. We see the hurricane. There's a few indistinguishable people. But all of a sudden, we just think we're kind of looking at an empty frame other than those colors. And all of a sudden, Ray, crouched down, comes running out of that darkness, out of the background, right into the foreground of the shot. And he stands up frantically. He's looking for Dave and Ginny. And that moment, that move 
becomes a dance number all of a sudden. The way he's positioned, the way he moves his body, that whole sequence is choreographed so tightly with Ray's movement, and he's precise like a dancer. I just felt like that encapsulated for me Minnelli's instincts and his strengths as a filmmaker in one sequence and shot where it's that combination of the cinematic, undeniably cinematic, but also theatrical, and a scene that is built on action, and it's all about the drama of it, it's also a musical in that moment because of the way he uses color and the way he uses physical motion. So for me, that, that felt like Minnelli in a nutshell, that scene from Some Came Running. That brings us to our garland for our favorite overall scene or moment from the marathon. I think we had three pretty good ones there. I don't know how you guys are going to top your choices for best scene. What do you have? All right. Well, I'm going with Dancing in the Dark from the bandwagon. Uh, You know, Michael at the beginning of the marathon listed a handful of things that he thought really marked out uh, Minnelli's talent. One was first uh, just allowing the talent on the screen to shine. The second was his at times stunning mise-en-scene. And uh, the third was the kind of wild camera work that seemed to come out of nowhere. Where had Minnelli learned these things? So this moment, Dancing in the Dark, has all three of these in harmony. And it's just a moment full of harmonies, not only in the musical sense, right, but also in terms of the performers and the camera with the performers. So this is when Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse are finally able to put aside their professional woes and come together. uh, And everything just moves incredibly beautifully. Uh, So like I say, you've got, first of all, the talent in front of the camera with Astaire and Charisse, who again are finally able to show off their skills uh, as they are in sync with one another. You've got this soundstage recreation, essentially, of what I believe is Central Park, Mm -hmm. correct? Uh, And in the background, right, it's this incredible sort of lazuli blue of a cityscape uh, in the background. And it just looks both hyper-real and uh, mood-setting uh, at the same time. It's, it's really beautiful. And then you have Minnelli's camera work. Uh, we talked about this dance. You know, it's essentially in three takes, um, the first of which is nearly two minutes. And it just glides as they glide. And, you know, you follow them from a kind of medium to a long shot as they move through, you know, the space of the park, but also through the expanse of the kind of wide lens uh, of the camera. Uh, And then by the third take, we get Minnelli's famous crane shot, uh, the depth of which is reinforced as they travel upstairs and conclude their dance. It's just another magical moment. And again, it's a very Minnelli moment that I really, uh, I just fell in love with. Um, You know, I think on that episode, Adam, you had mentioned that the cherry on top uh, is the way Astaire sort of spins so elegantly into the horse-drawn carriage. Uh, And you have this kind of brilliant match on action when that happens, right? And it really just gives a nice sort of concluding moment to this dance that the two of them have shared. I also think that Michael joked in that episode that really any fool could fall in love with that sequence. But for me, right, that sequence (laughs) made me a fool for Minnelli. So I had to go with that. It's my number one. Love it. Here's another fool. Yeah, we have really? more consensus here. Yeah. All right. I mean, you know, for me, I think it is uh, partly why I value that so much is if my main issue with the bandwagon was that I felt overwhelmed by Manica Manelli, right? That as, as I am with an American in Paris a little bit, it probably makes sense that my favorite scene is going to be one that works directly the opposite. Mm-hmm. So it's the quietest one. It's probably the quietest one in this film, one of the quieter ones in the entire marathon. And you described, Nathaniel, the progression of the scene very well, how they are feeling each other out and move from this tentative um, walking, strolling alongside in sync to the full out dance number. And of course, this has all been rehearsed. But the way they play it and the way it's filmed is you have it feels like the experience of watching a dance number come alive for the first time before your eyes and the lovely touches that that's exactly what's happening with the chemistry between the two characters. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, dancing in the dark from the bandwagon for me. And it's not as if, like, Minnelli's not showing off there, but it's he's not showing off because it's the camera's so unobtrusive. Right. Yes. It's just Giving working. them their space. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a wonderful choice, you guys. In fact, it's my runner-up. I'm really glad, though, I did not pick it as my Garland scene because I'm going with the one, Nathaniel, you touched on earlier. Judy Garland, it's over the banister hmm. in Meet Me in St. Louis. I watched this again today. I've watched it probably 12 or 15 times now, and I just marvel at Garland in 
that sequence where she is trying to seduce is the wrong word. She's trying to woo the boy next door. She's trying to entice him to fall in love with her. She's making her play. Yeah, she's making the play indeed. And she is at the top of the stairs and we watch her go to the lights and dim them with her hand and then go just stand in the perfect position. So the glow of the light is showing right on her face and right on his face so as he can see her better Mm -hmm. from the bottom of the stairs. And uh, like I said, I just marvel at Garland because of the way she owns the frame. And maybe you've heard critics or other people use that expression. It's probably meaningless most of the time. But watch this scene again and watch how she just pauses in the frame. There's no rushing. She's just in complete control of all of her movement. She's completely comfortable with the camera on her, the way she just tilts her head slightly for effect even. And she becomes actor, director, and DP all at once in that scene, adjusting that lighting for maximum effect. And as I said, standing in that perfect spot, it just heightens this overall sense of, of, of grandeur about her and majesty about her. And I said during the review that that's the moment that John Truitt, the boy at the bottom of the stairs, falls in love with her. That's the moment I fell completely in love with her and it is the one scene that has stuck with me the most from this entire Hmm. marathon nobody only those eyes of brown tender and full of meaning gaze on the loveliest face in time Over the banister, my favorite scene, it gets my garland. And that brings us finally to another category where I fear we might have consensus. But sometimes there are surprises. Our best picture, our favorite movie from the Minnelli Marathon. Which one do you go with, Nathaniel? So there's an objectively right answer. (laughs) I agree with you, actually. (laughs) It is the bad and the beautiful. However. What? Okay. Whoa, really? Interesting. (laughs) Go ahead. No. Where are you going? So, However, we're waiting oh, okay, for the shooter right, drop. Okay. So here's the thing. You'll talk lots about this, right? I'm going to let you talk about it. I want to instead throw a bone to Sam Van Hallgren, film spotting producer, former co-host, seem, seemingly really nice guy, right? <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> I'm going to make an argument for Meet Me in St. Louis. Okay. Oh, let's hear it. I know you both expressed that either you liked it as much or less than Cabin in the Sky even, right? So I know where you're at with it, I think, or I believe I know where you're at with it. And I also share your reservations, right? It's quaintness is cultish. It is this kind of idyllic Midwesternism that I don't really buy, right? And I think can actually be problematic. But here's the thing. I think you can also draw out some really lovely things from... What also makes it problematic? First of all, maybe the tenderness and knowingness of the family unit. Uh, again, in a song like You and I, which I talked about in my voicemail, which I think is just absolutely touching. Uh, the extremely high stakes for the family, right, that's threatened to, with moving to the dreaded East Coast, right? That is ridiculous, but, but charming in its ridiculousness. It's not high stakes for us, but that doesn't bother me. It's more interested in, I think, being sort of ruminative about this kind of family dynamic here. And I'll confess, I even kind of like the weird Halloween scenes, all right? <laughs> Which You kind of have to. I mean, it's so bizarre. <laughs> it seemed to tap into, for me, this kind of wild, unruly nature of of the holidays, of Halloween's pagan roots, right, of the kind of Celtic harvest festivals where you had bonfires, and and in that way sort of worked against the kind of incoming modernity that wants to zap uh, this folkish culture uh, of its energy yeah. before it gets commercialized, before it gets codified, mm-hmm. right? And so it's bizarre. It's weird to watch... Tootie walking down as she goes to confront and knock on the door of her neighbor. Uh, And Tootie, yeah, is a bizarre creature. But I also find it weirdly exhilarating. And so I'll turn it to this final point here, which is that, you know, you guys often brought up the manic 
aspect of Minnelli. And I've really been trying to figure out what, why does that work in certain, at certain times and why does it not work? And I don't think I have an answer here. But when he's let loose, when there isn't any kind of pressure to contain that manicness, then I think it's problematic. Then it just gets too much and it, it feels aggressive. But when you have something like Meet Me in St. Louis or The Bad and the Beautiful, even moments of uh, Some Came Running, I believe, that seek to contain it, you get this kind of tension uh, that then these manic moments sort of percolate or come to a head uh, and it's really captivating. It's like there's little this little steam is is let out, right? I'm thinking about that kind of car crash scene of Bad and the Beautiful or um, Jim Henry's Paradise in Cabin in the Sky when we really enter into that club in the Ferris wheel scene of Some Came Running uh, or that other moment in Some Came Running where it fades to uh, black, essentially. Um, or the dimming of the lights in the balcony scene or the trolley scene. Uh, and even in a kind of more subdued way, kind of have yourself a merry little Christmas, which, again, isn't as kind of crazy or manic as all that, but but still has this kind of depth and and kind of works against the kind of otherwise quaintness of uh, the film in that way. So it just becomes very compelling to me. Look, the answer here, again, is bad and the beautiful. <laughs> but uh, throw Sammy a bone here. Uh, there's something I think in Meet Me in St. Louis that, that's really interesting and really captivating and has kept me thinking about that film. So. Well, Professor, I think Josh and I might give you a B plus, A minus. <laughs> Sam's giving you an A oh, plus. Yeah. Though. Right. And that's all, all that matters. <laughs> to be fair. Flying colors from Sam. <laughs> to be fair, I'm also not willing to revoke my film spotting card. And if that's going to do it, just say Bad and the Beautiful, all right? <laughs> well, he says it's the objective right answer, Josh, and, and he's right, isn't he? He is right. Yeah, it's the Bad and the Beautiful. Although I would have loved to it have been a musical. I never I would know, have guessed I'd mm. gone into yes, this marathon and sure. not come out with a musical as the winner for the best picture. But, you know, given the slight reservations I have about both Meet Me in St. Louis and The Bandwagon, though I really like your theory, Nathaniel, that makes a lot of sense of why I like Meet Me in St. Louis better than The Bandwagon mm, probably yeah. is because those those outbursts, you could call them, do let the pressure out and there's a relief and I'm not overwhelmed like I am in some of those other films. So I think that uh, does work well in Meet Me in St. Louis. But I'm going with Minnelli's 1952 Hollywood melodrama. I'm going with The Bad and the Beautiful. Uh, it's not just in opposition to those films. I really think this stands on its own as simultaneously a celebration slash demonstration of Hollywood artistry and this questioning of the personal cost that comes with it. Let's start with the filmmaking itself. The camera gliding through a Hollywood party, picking up conversations as Altman would mm -hmm, do yes. decades later. The pan among the faces of a crew on set during a big acting moment, which the Coen brothers stole for Hail Caesar. That climactic shot of the three principals, Barry Sullivan, Lana Turner, Dick Powell, leaning into the spotlight to hear the call from Kirk Douglas's producer. And, you know, speaking of Turner, she, she was a runner-up for my Best Supporting Performance Award, probably Best Actress Award, actually, now that I think about it. That's where I probably had her as that depressed alcoholic actress who has shades of, surprisingly enough, Shirley MacLaine's Fran Kubelek in the apartment. Mm -hmm. So in a nice surprise for me, The Bad and Beautiful gets my garland for Best Picture. Yeah. Now, before I just regurgitate all of that, I want to go back quickly to Some Came Running, the conversation you missed. All I really cared about from that entire discussion was how you would react when you heard me make the connection to Miller's Crossing in the hat. I heard that. I appreciate it. I was thinking it as well. <laughs> okay. Another lift, right? We were, we were on the same Another page Another Cohen there. lift. So my best picture is The Bad and the Beautiful as well. It's the only movie from the marathon I've seen twice now because it's the only one I had seen previously. Obviously watched it again for our review. And it's the only one I'm really eager to watch again and the one I would most heartily recommend to people. So that matters. And the opening sequence, which Josh, you touched on it. It's your Minnelli moment, the kiss of the cameras and Nathaniel, you touched on it with maybe it was another scene, but you touched on the use of mirrors. And that's such a prominent part of this film. I love that opening sequence because not only does it perfectly set up the characters and how we're going to encounter them and the worlds that they inhabit and some of the key themes of the film that we're going to come to realize. But we get that great mirror sequence where we're introduced to Lana Turner. Three different versions of Lana Turner are reflected back to us. So that sets up that conceit, what's real, what's representation, and then that core 
sort of Manelli dilemma for me, and there's there's multiple moving parts of this, but I think it's the most vividly depicted here. It's that idea of the professional versus the personal, that conflict undoubtedly here, but also this indictment of Hollywood, while at the same time, it can't help but reinforce the myth and the power of Hollywood and of art. And then I, I kept referring to this in other reviews, this cynicism that's at the core of a lot of the characters, this kind of world weariness about how this place works, how life in general will chew you up and spit you out. And yet there's this side of Manelli that comes through in certain characters where he seems to just want to evoke a sense of joy and hope and have these compassionate characters that can be sort of models. It's the conflict I would sum up in Dave and Ginny from Some Came Running, where he, I think, wants to make her the character that we all love the most and respect. And at the end of the day, as we discussed, he just can't help but make Dave the hero. But that conflict is fascinating in that film, and it's a fascinating conflict in The Bad and the Beautiful and throughout other films we saw in the marathon. For me, though, it really was the film that I just enjoyed the most. At the end of the day, I didn't think it was going to be the one. I'm with you, Josh. I thought for sure I was going to swoon over Meet Me in St. Louis or The Bandwagon, and I'm grateful I saw both films and that we for had sure. a chance to, to talk about them in detail, but The Bad and the Beautiful is my pick for Best Picture. Sorry, Nathaniel, you're wrong. I mean, <laughs> you're wrong, but right <laughs> you know? on this one. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that closes out the marathon, and it's funny because we haven't actually really talked about what our next marathon might be or when it might happen. Have you been thinking about uh, this at all? No, I haven't actually, but we usually do have a plan at this point, we don't do. we? We'll come up with one. We will come up with one. We'll look to Nathaniel. Maybe he'll have some good ideas. I've got some thoughts. Okay. I can't wait <laughs> to hear those. And hopefully you had a good time dropping by the studio, being this, part of Film Spotting in the Flesh. This was amazing, guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks we for coming. appreciate it as well. Thank you for the insights. And thank you to, of course, our wonderful producer and Meet Me in St. Louis fan, fanatic, really, Sam Van Hallgren. Of course, thanks to our producer, Golden Joe Dassault. Without Sam and Golden Joe, the show wouldn't go. We do need to remind you that if you're hearing this on Wednesday or Thursday or in advance of the regular episode that comes out on Fridays, we will have one of those. Josh is actually back this week. Yep. I'm gonna no s- more guests. I'm going to stick around for two shows in a row. Imagine that. How did you describe the movie we're going to discuss? I think in our Slack today, after finishing Lean on Pete, you said, really cheery. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite what I was expecting, but doesn't mean it's bad. No, it doesn't. <laughs> we will talk about that. And we will share really what's got to go down as the runner-up to best all-time Top fives here on Film Spotting. It's right behind Manimals. Horse scenes. <laughs> now, now, wait a minute. Where does bicycle scenes fit in that list? It's, it's third. Third? Think? Yeah, I think bicycle it's... Bicycle scenes is more reasonable than horse scenes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. There are probably more horses in cinema than there are bicycles. If you think about... I think you're right. ...the litany of Westerns, right? Yeah. We'll get the professor on that. Thank you very much again, Nathaniel, for Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.